In module two, we talked about the um, three competencies related to points three, six, and nine. And uh, now we're going to, and they, they were, uh, we call it the self-mastery competencies because they have to do with, um, uh, with managing behavior and changing behavior, okay? um, awareness, authenticity, and action. Now we're moving into leadership relationships. Okay, uh, This has to do with uh, how we interact with other people and what are some of the emotional um, elements involved, particularly for leaders. But again, as we've seen with everything else, these things don't just apply to leaders. Okay, They're especially important for leaders to understand and to be able to manage, but um, not necessarily um, uh, exclusive to leaders. Um, so yeah, uh, and, they are, and I'll repeat these because it might be confusing still for some people. And these concepts, um, these competencies are conceptually linked to the types, but are not um, related to the type itself. So type one rigor, it's not like because I'm a one, I'll have more rigor or less rigor or anything like that. It's just a concept that it's linked to um, the strategy of striving to feel perfect in some way. Yeah. And uh, we're using the same framework to map out the um, competencies that we're talking about here. Yeah, it's a very good point because it is tempting, you know, and with these three competencies that we're going to talk about today at points eight, five, and two, um, it is really just, you know, another um, version of the strategy, right? We call the eight striving to feel powerful, the five striving to feel detached, and the two striving to feel connected, right? So there's a real, you know, uh, crossover here uh, between the Enneagram type and the concept. But as Maria Jose said, it's not exclusive to the type. And just because somebody is that Enneatype doesn't mean they're going to apply that competency skillfully. Mm -hmm. something really important yeah so we'll see that there might be a tendency of twos to draw i mean to um, focus more on connection but as mario's saying we are not implying that they do it well or skillfully yeah. right right so with the inner triangle of the enneagram um points three six and nine we saw sort of a, a cycle that happened right awareness authenticity and action and then you know kind of a virtuous circle there um with yeah these... that we can continue to apply that's why it's called self-mastery because it's how we um, manage ourselves mm -hmm. to continue to improve and yeah. and that's the beauty of it yeah and it's an ongoing process yeah. right um but here we have kind of a um a dynamic environment where there's movement and that's what's represented in the arrow so it, it you, you know i'll ask people you know, watching this video to imagine an open-ended triangle with point eight at the top right um and uh we don't have a cycle this time so much as we have a series of dynamics and um at the top is power point eight um and you know any Anybody who knows anything about leadership understands that you can't extract the concept of power from leadership because power is the capacity to produce a result, right? And if you're not able to do that, you're not going to be a leader very long, right? And, you know, and everybody needs to have the capacity to produce a result in any aspect of their life, right? Um, so the, the, the reason that we have a you know, vertical arrow here um, if we twisted this a little bit and heat was at the top, right? Um, the reason we would have this vertical arrow, you know, with two ends at it is that the leader needs to understand how much power to apply in a given situation, right? And it is dynamic and the right amount of power depends on the circumstances, right? Um, the leader needs to be empowering of others when possible, right? Meaning that they uh, give other people the opportunity to express their power, which means that the eight is, I'm sorry, the, the leader in this case is, you know, letting go of power 
in a sense, right? Applying less personal power, but, uh, you know, allowing the power to be uh, dispersed to other people. Uh, there are other times, however, when the leader needs to step in and be authoritative and make a decision, right? And say, okay, no, here's what we're going to do. I always liken this to parenting, right? Parents need to understand that you need to give your children opportunity to make decisions for themselves and to, uh, you know, to, to feel empowered and to act on their own. And there are other times when you need to step in and be, you know, almost dictatorial and say, no, you know, this is how it's going to happen. Right. So this is what this arrow represents. This double-ended arrow is being flexible and understanding how much power to apply when. Yeah. The other axis is the uh, detachment and connection um, competencies, which need to be in a dynamic tension when you are uh, in leadership and you're trying, when you're um, dealing with people, you need to have the right amount of connection so that you can inspire, so that you can um, empathize, you can um, communicate with them properly. But then on the other hand, you need also the right amount of detachment so that you can think clearly, you can make difficult decisions and uh, you can see things um, in a more objective way. Some situations require more of one, some of the other, and that's why we have these um, double-ended arrow, and we need to be aware that when we need what and where we need to position ourselves in every situation. And some of us tend to be closer to one more naturally, and some of us closer to the other one. So there's an element here of, you know, sometimes we can think of this as a continuum. Um, sometimes I need to be more connected, other times more detached. But it also helps to think of having to hold them both at the same time, right? Of having empathy and the capacity for connection at the same time that we're being detached. And, you know, every... Um, leader has had to make difficult decisions to, you know, that they know are going to be painful for other people. And um, being able to make those decisions while still having empathy for other people is really important. I remember one time I was uh, working with a, a leadership team and they were going through, they were about to do a downsizing, right? So they had to get rid of, you know, 10 people or something. And um, so they were going through the list of people and it's easy to fall into kind of a detached place in that situation because it's painful to get rid of people that, you know, they don't care about. And at one point they were becoming, you know, almost macabre about it and, you know, almost starting to make jokes about things. And, and, and I remember saying to them, guys, let's remember we're talking about people here. And at first they were really angry with me for bringing that up, you know, because it was easier just to be detached and not be connected. But then they realized it helped them make better decisions, you know, when they can hold that humanity. And it's like soldiers when they need to kill the enemy. Yeah. They kind of feel connected and look at their faces and think about their families. They need to detach. Yes. Um, but we're not in war. <laughs> well, maybe you're not, but yeah. Well, <laughs> uh, not all the time. Right. And yeah. Yeah. There's a great, actually, a, a great scene that this just made me think of from the movie Saving Private Ryan, where the Tom Hanks character is talking about, you know, what it's like to have to send people to their death, right? Of, mm. you know, we've got a mission to accomplish. And I know that by giving this order that this guy and this guy and this guy will probably get killed. But I have to think of the whole and make that decision, you know. So, mm -hmm. so this is one of the challenges of leadership. And anybody in any position of authority has to be able to understand these two pulls and continue to function anyway. Okay? So that's why all three of these things are related to each other. We're going to talk about power 
in this video. And um, we always have to start off by acknowledging that power is a very loaded term. And people often have a visceral reaction to the word power, uh, sometimes positive and sometimes negative. Right? So yeah. most times negative. I mean, when it's loaded. Uh, yeah. 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 So, so when, when they react, uh, I think when it's positive, it's more natural. Mm -hmm. When there's more of a reaction, it's usually, in my experience, more negative. Yeah. Uh, I was dealing with a client the other day, and he was almost avoiding the word power. You know, it's just too loaded. And he yeah. could see why it, would, it was loaded. But we'll have to talk about it anyway. Yeah. And, and this is why it's so important to just keep going back to reminding people that power is the capacity to produce a result. Mm -hmm. Right. And uh, it's not necessarily dominance. OK. And it's not necessarily control. Um, those are misapplications of power. Power is like electricity. Right. I mean, electricity is actually a form of power. Um, we can use it, you know, to light our homes or we can use it to, you know, electrocute somebody. Right. So, um, you know, it's so sorry, uh, but uh, you know, I mean, it just goes to show you the two extremes. Right. So um, there's a famous saying uh, that, that's often, that's almost always misquoted. Right. Because this, the, the way it's usually referred to is that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. But what Lord Acton actually said was power tends to corrupt. OK. Um, and yes, there, there's lots of studies who, you know, demonstrating that, um, you know, power and status tend to have a corrupting effect on people. OK. Mm -hmm. But not necessarily. And um, and it's not power itself, but the way it's used. OK. And so it's always important to remember we can we can use it to dominate others. Um, and, and to abuse want, others and to that, abuse others yeah. Yeah. go ahead yeah. now that that's one of the main distortions or misconceptions about power that it's it it involves abuse yeah yeah and you know and there's also a culture element cultural element to this right in the united states we're not as you know triggered uh, by the word power is, you know, some other cultures are. Latin yeah. America is a good example, but there are other places. Um, so um, uh, so this is just important to, to remember, okay? Just like with the strategies, there's adaptive and maladaptive uses of power, okay? And we just have to make sure we're using it adaptively. And you can't use it adaptively if you don't understand it, right? So the more dangerous something is, the more we need to understand it, I think, right? So, um, you know, if you don't understand electricity, you have a whole lot better chance of, you know, shocking yourself when you're working on the wiring in your home than if you understand electricity, okay? So um, power is something, especially if you're in a leadership role, you really, really need to understand. Before we talk about power, however, um, we have to talk about strength. Okay, so strength is um, capacity. Really, it's 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 the load we are able to exert, such as pushing the rock up the hill, like our friend Sisyphus here, um, or um, the capacity to endure something right so there's an active strength and there's kind of a passive strength right strength is it can be my ability to resist a force coming at me okay uh, to endure something or it can be my capacity to um, exert upon something uh, assertively okay pushing something rather than resisting being pushed are both aspects of strength yeah i was thinking about um How many situations um, you face during your life to cultivate that capacity? I mean, the strengths. Because some people are strong uh, by nature almost. And some people have had lives with 
less opportunities to cultivate that strength, um, which doesn't mean that they will not be able to develop it. And um, I think that being aware that is something that you need to cultivate that is important. Yeah, absolutely right. Like most attributes, strength is something that is um, innately variable in people, yeah. right? Uh, both emotional strength, mental strength, physical strength, right? I mean, I've known people throughout the years uh, who were just like freakishly strong, just mm. naturally right and others who were not right and you know it had nothing to do with how much exercise they did or anything like that there's just differences right and i think that same thing applies to um emotional and mental strength as well uh, and these things can be cultivated right uh, again like every other attribute we can um, we can increase the amount of strength we have through uh, through effort and discipline yeah So again, um, just to, to reinforce this idea that sometimes strength is uh, defensive in nature, right? Uh, the capacity of an object or substance to withstand great force or pressure. Okay, so yeah. it's the castle. So it's the ability to endure. Okay, um, you know, life is difficult, right? Um, you know, uh, for for everyone, life is hard, and um, some people are broken by it, and some people are not, and you know, there's degrees to which we can endure on our own. So cultivating um, strength, emotional, mental, physical strength is really, really important. Okay. And from a defensive measure, um, you know, uh, protecting ourselves against you know, uh, disease, for example, is a form of strength, right? Having you know, our immunity system, um, you know, strengthened when possible um, is a variation of this yeah and in leadership the higher up in the organization you are the more strength you need uh, yes yeah. it's it, decisions become harder there's less people above you to <laughs> take responsibility for things yeah. and uh if anyone and you need strength for that yeah yeah i'll just give a a real just to show this I'll, I'll give a real simple example you know i, I I'm, I like to watch baseball, right? And um, I've, you know, watched baseball since I was a kid. And back in the 1970s, 1980s, the players didn't lift weights, right? They didn't do a lot of strength and conditioning, right? And uh, this, I know this won't mean anything to you, Maria Jose, but, you know, back then, if a pitcher could throw a 90-mile-an-hour fastball, that was a big deal, right? Uh, now... 90 miles an hour is not a big deal. Now, 100 miles an hour is a big deal. And, you know, it's it's purely through strength and conditioning that has happened, right? So the game has just changed profoundly. And the players, you know, back in the 70s, if you took them, you know, in the same condition they were in and had them playing today, they, they wouldn't be able to do it, right? Just because of that strength and conditioning that happens here. So. Yeah. Which takes us into this idea of the, the body, right? Um, you know, the, the physical strength. Um, Vince Lombardi, the American football coach, uh, you know, famously said that fatigue makes cowards of us all, right? That, um, you know, he, he was kind of a hard guy. He was known for also for saying winning isn't the best thing. It's the only thing, right? And uh, and my favorite all-time quote is, you know, show me a good loser and I'll show you a loser. Um, you know, but he had a point around this idea where if, you know, we become fatigued physically, mentally, emotionally, we get weaker, right? And we start to give in and we start to hold down. So um, it's really important, particularly for leaders to take care of themselves physically, right? To have a certain amount of physical strength, to have stamina, to have flexibility, right? Um, because, you know, these characteristics in the body lead to this in the brain. Now, this image here is a, a Shaolin monk, right? And, uh, you know, the, the Kung Fu arts, the Shaolin Kung Fu arts, started in a Buddhist monastery, 
right? And they started as a way of a, um, you know, a head monk uh, named Dalmo uh, to create physical stamina in the monks so that they could stay awake for meditation, right? So he understood that a strong body leads to a strong mind. Plato, um, the word Plato means broad shoulders, right? Plato was a wrestler, right? He was physically um, fit and, and large and strong. And, you know, again, it gets to this idea that having some physical capacity, strength, stamina, and flexibility allow for more effective emotional intelligence and more effective uh, intellectual intelligence as well. In this um, video, we're going to talk about a couple of uh, ideas related to strength and power uh, that are important capabilities to have. Well, one's a capability that you have to have. The other one is a philosophy uh, that we will encourage people to look into. But the, um, the, the capacity that we want to talk about or the quality is will. Okay, um, You know, Gurdjieff, who much of the Enneagram uh, you know, peripheral ideas are, are you know, sort of related to, um, depending on who you ask, um, talked a lot about will. Gurdjieff was probably an eight, right? And will is something that is, you know, again, I think it's safe to say that when it comes to will here, eights have a bit of a leg up over some of the other types. It's more of an innate quality in them, you know, some of the other types as well, but uh, certainly something associated with point eight. Um, will is uh, a couple of definitions. It's funny, when I was preparing this slide, I was surprised at how many different definitions and uses of this word there are, right? It can be a verb, you know, it can be a, a transitive verb, you know, you will do this or you will do that, or uh, it can be a you know, the last will and testament is, you know, how I want, you know, things dispersed after I'm dead. Uh, but here we're talking about two qualities. Uh, one is a disposition to act according to principles or ends, meaning that, you know, I have a vision of what is the right thing to do and where I'm going, and I am going to do it, right? I'm not going to stop. I'm going to act. And the other is the power of control over one's own actions or emotions, how much I can manage that. Now, um, this power to control one's own actions or emotions is an area where eights are well known for, you know, not being so strong, right? Uh, you know, so it's almost, uh, I heard an interesting um, description of the difference between discipline and self-discipline recently that I think applies here. Uh, discipline is, well, self-discipline is a tendency to just be structured innately, right? That I tend to clean up my room. I tend to, you know, attend all the details. I tend to follow the rules, etc. Okay. So that's self-discipline. Discipline is once I know something needs to get done, I will do it, right? Even though I may not be self-disciplined, my room will be a mess, but if you give me a task to do, I'll get it done. Okay. And very often what you see in the elite military forces, um, you know, like the Navy SEALs, for example, is people who may not have a great amount of self-discipline, right? Uh, but they have a huge amount of discipline. And so um, it's an interesting distinction here. Now, both of them are useful, right? Um, they, they, you know, but uh, one, the lack of one does not apply the lack of the other. Uh, and the presence of one does not impl imply the presence of the other. Okay. Um, Go, were you going to say something? No. Okay. So, um, so will here is just, you know, recognizing that I just have to suck it up and get things done sometimes. Right. Um, you know, just you stop know, crying. Stop whining. <laughs> Life is hard. You know, be a big boy or big girl and get it done. Don't care if it hurts. Don't care if it's, you know, tiring. Don't care if it's difficult. You know, the antelope doesn't come into the camp, right? You want to eat, you go out and you hunt. Okay. Um, and, you know, this is life. And I think 
particularly in a lot of psycho-spiritual environments, there's a lot of lip service paid to will, but not a lot of real, you know, effort applied to will. A lot of times people just want to, you know, hang around and talk about their feelings and not get up and do something about it. Okay, so um, if we really want to grow in any way, as leaders, as human beings, spiritually, it requires will. So why did you choose that picture? Because, yeah, so, so this is, you know, because will is forged, right? Will is something that's built over time. So this is a blacksmith. I don't know. It looks like he's hammering a sword or something. But, um, you know, there's that, you know, will is, again, some people have more of it innately than others. But it's something that we need to, to forge through hard work, okay, through effort, through practice, through consistency, okay? And here we've got this blacksmith who's going to, you know, take this sword and stick it into the fire, right? And, you know, heat it up and then bang on it with the hammer, you know, you know, who knows how many times and then do it again and do it again and do it again until he gets a finely sharpened sword at the end. Yeah. And, and, and it is related to strength, right? I mean, sure. the, the stronger I feel, the easier it is to kind of exert will. And, yeah. Um, yeah. and it, it is something that you can work on. And the more you uh, are open and engage into difficult situations and just, as you said, suck it up and go with it, the more prepared you are for future situations. So it's yeah. something that you can build. Yeah. yeah. At least the confidence that you can do it. Yeah. When I was a kid, I used to read comic books. Um, at the, in the back of the comic books, there was um, always an advertisement for Charles Atlas's strength training program, right? And they would tell the story of how Charles Atlas, when he was, you know, younger, was a 97-pound weakling, right? You know, it's just, it's, that's about, you know, what, 45 kilograms or something, right? And um, so... It, You know, and, and he was at the beach and, you know, talking to this pretty girl and some bully comes along and kicks sand in his face, you know, and then he goes off and he devises this exercise program and comes back as this big strong guy and gets the girl, right? Um, and so, um, and they always made it look like, you know, uh, easy to do, you know, you don't have to work that hard and you'll get big and strong, but that's not true, right? I mean, any way of developing strength takes a lot of work, you know, mm -hmm. um, but you're absolutely right. The more of that work you do, the easier difficult things are, right? So, and again, not just physically, but emotionally and intellectually as well. Yeah. And cultivating that emotional and intellectual, um, emotional and intellectual strength, you know, can be done lots of ways, but, um, you know, I think that stoicism, the philosophy of stoicism is one of the better ways to cultivate these qualities that we're talking about here, right? Again, um, I am not the advocate or, you know, proponent or follower of any one school of philosophy, right? I like to pick ideas from different places. So I'm not a pure stoicist um, or some pure stoic, but there are some ideas there that are useful for cultivating these qualities, right? And so stoicism is, you know, kind of the ability to function uh, unemotionally and to endure, to understand that life is tough. Right. And that we have to cultivate uh, an emotional detachment and strength and, uh, you know, uh, a strong inner spirit in order to be able to, you know, be an effective leader. Uh, the most famous proponent of uh, stoicism was Marcus Aurelius, the great uh, uh, Roman leader. There's a couple of quotes here that uh, I think are useful. Uh, Stoicism teaches us that if we have the essentials and the strong inner spirit, we can radically accept and endure whatever circumstances the universe throws at us. Okay. Uh, life plays out in its own logic of cause and effect, which was uh, the Greek word logos. We cannot control the hand we are dealt. We can only control how we react to it. Um, you know, this, this kind of touches on the idea of uh, acceptance at point one mm -hmm. that we talked about in module two, right? Um, these things are, are very closely related. We have 
Stoicism involves acceptance uh, kind of combined with strength in, in that way. Yeah, but it's not a surrendering. It's no, absolutely not. I'm acceptance not. so that you deal with what is and not... Uh, well, I'm thinking about my own logic, but not what it should be or what I would like it to be, or but just what is. And, yeah. and that's the best way to see it clearly and then react effectively to it. Yeah. I like to use the analogy of poker, right? Um, you know, you'd, you have no control over the cards you are dealt, right? Mm -hmm. But you have control over the way you play those cards, right? Mm -hmm. I can, you know, make a bet according to the strength of them. I can make a big bet or small bet. I can, you know, uh, uh, fold wh whatever it is. So, um, you know, um, what we're talking about here combines both of those elements. Yeah. Continuing on with our uh, discussion about power and leadership, um, I'm a big fan of uh, the work of David McClelland. Uh, David McClelland was a leadership theorist. Uh, he was a psychologist focusing on leadership who taught at Harvard. Um, in, I think he died in the late 70s, 77, 78, around there, um, and wrote a number of books uh, which are kind of hard to find. And his ideas were really popular for a while and then they kind of, you know, faded away. But I've always thought um, that he understood something around motivation better than anybody else I've encountered. And uh, some ideas he had have been really, really useful to me. Um, he originally wrote an article in the in, I think it was 1976 in the Harvard Business Review that they consider to be one of their classic um articles and republish every so often because they just think it's so useful, something that I agree with. Okay, uh, That article was called Power is the Great Motivator. And what McClelland wrote about in this article, uh, which he co-authored with um, David Burnham, was a study that they had done on leaders and motivation. And um, McClelland had a theory that, particularly for leaders, there are three fundamental motivations that we need to be aware of. A need for affiliation, which is a desire to be liked by other people. Uh, a need for achievement, which is a desire to, you know, achieve goals for, um, you know, personal satisfaction. And then the need for power, which is the ability to exert one's will on one's environment, right? And he said, we all have each of these motivations to varying degrees, but... In their studies, they found that these qualities expressed themselves in particular ways in the most effective leaders. Okay. Especially leaders at the top of the organization. Yes. It was mainly CEOs, as far yes. as I remember. Yes, absolutely right. That's an excellent point. So um, because at different, you know, in different environments, you will see, you know, where, say, for example, a need for affiliation is, you know, very useful. Um, and makes for a very effective leader. But in general, at the most senior levels of leadership, um, a particular pattern plays out, right? Um, and so the idea here is that we express these capacities uh, differentially, okay? Um, we're also going to talk about the idea of inhibition um, and how... Um, Inhibition comes into play, but we'll touch on that more in, a, in a, another video we're going to talk about. So the need for affiliation, if we go to the next slide, Maria Jose. The need for affiliation is the desire to be liked. Okay, It's the desire to want to make people happy. And what McClelland and Burnham found was that people for whom the need for affiliation was highest tended not to be great you know, tended to be the least effective leaders. We'll say that. Okay. Now, something I want to say is that, and I want to be really careful here. Okay. Um, because there are some implications that, you know, people might, or some inferences that people might make that they shouldn't. But when you read the description in McClellan's work of people with a high need for affiliation, it's pretty much describing nines. Right. Uh, it was kind of freaky to me to read McClellan's work. And when he talks about the need for affiliation, he's describing nines. 
And when he talks about the need for achievement, he's describing threes. And when he talks about the need for power, he's describing eights. Okay. Uh, Now, surprise, surprise, (laughs) surprise, right? So it's intriguing to me personally, because whenever people ask me, you know, what have you found, you know, regarding leadership uh, profiles at the top, for whatever reason, in my career as an executive coach at more senior levels, I have encountered more nines, threes, and eights than the other types. Does this mean I have not worked with, you know, leaders, senior leaders of other types? No, it doesn't. And one of the best CEOs I ever knew was a seven, right? So, you know, all of these things are, you know, um, subject to, um, you know, uh, exception. Okay. But in broad tendencies, when McClellan's talking about people with the high need for affiliation, higher than the need for achievement, need for power, sounds an awful lot like he's describing nines. Okay. The downside to having a high need for affiliation is that um, if, uh, if I'm trying to make everybody happy, there's a good chance I'm not going to make anybody happy. Okay. Uh, now, the next one is a need for achievement. And again, when you're reading McClelland and he's describing people whose need for achievement is higher than the other two needs, it sounds an awful lot like he's describing threes. I think we're, I think we're in a future video, we're going to talk about each one of these things a little more detailed, right? So I won't go into them here. Okay. Is that correct? Uh, Not really. No. Okay. All right. So I better say more about these then. Okay, good. So um, what tends to happen with people with a high need for achievement is they set personal goals for themselves and can get very frustrated when the goal is either too easy or too difficult and when other people sort of get in the way, right? So if they don't have a very clear vision of what it is I need to accomplish and very clear metrics for it, they can get frustrated. And so we see people with a high need for achievement have a tendency to do really well early in their career, but then they get to a certain point and they'll make a change, right? They'll go to another you know, organization, take another role, something like that, uh, because they're not getting that same sense of consistent feedback on identifiable goals. Okay. And again, this is something I see in threes a lot. Isn't there also a tendency to be a bit more individualistic? Absolutely, right? Because, you know, and, and again, anybody, including threes, can be team players, right? But they can struggle because, you know, I, I have a goal in mind. And, you know, people on the team, if they're not playing at their best, if we don't have the best people on the team, hold me back. Right. So and again, this is something we see with threes uh, very often that can be frustrating for them regarding teams. Okay, so uh, people who have the high need for achievement uh, um, can struggle at a certain point. So the need for power is just this innate desire to exert one's will on one's environment, right? To make something happen, to produce an effect. It doesn't have to necessarily be a specific goal, right? It can just be this feeling of every day I get to get up and I get to exert my, you know, my power on things, my influence on things. And, you know, the goal can be different tomorrow than it was, than it is the next day. Okay. And, or that it was yesterday. Uh, It's just that feeling of having, you know, this need to exert oneself. What McClellan and Burnham found was that at high levels of the organization, people whose need for power was highest, need for achievement was second, and need for affiliation was kind of a distant third, tended to be the most effective senior leaders. And again, um, it's hard not to read this and not think of eights. Okay, even though again, these qualities apply whether or these um, uh, attributes apply whether the person is an eight or not. Yeah, and what they also said was that um, at those high levels of the organization, you need to have a lot of energy to uh, deal with what you needed to deal with, and uh, that if you don't have a high need for power to 
produce a result, to move things in the direction you want them to move, it's hard to get it done. Um, so the need for power is almost necessary in order to be in those positions. Yeah, yeah. And what, because what I find is that, you know, the people who don't make it to that point, who aspire but don't make it, just kind of give up because they say, you know what, I don't feel like dealing with these headaches. Mm -hmm. right? uh, I don't feel like dealing with these hassles. It feels like a waste of time and, and, and so forth. Right. Mm -hmm. So there is this element of, you know, will that we talked about uh, previously and strength that we talked about previously and just a fundamental desire. Right. I mean, not everybody desires to have power, a lot of power. Right. And that's that's fine. Yeah. But if you want to be in the big chair, you need to have this, right? I mean, that's just really what it comes down to. Right? So, um, so many of the clients that I work with, we have to focus on um, developing more of a desire for power if they want to be in really senior positions. Yeah, and many times it has to do with what we've said before in terms of the distortion that some people have with the word power or the concept of power. So in order to unlock that need for power, those things need to be dealt with. Yeah. Continuing on with McClellan's work, um, as we said in the last video, he, um, he identified uh, those with a high need for power as, you know, in the long term, tending to be the most um, effective leaders in senior levels. He also drew a distinction between two kinds of power motivation, which are really important to understand. Right? He drew a distinction between uh, personal power leaders and people who he called institutional or social power leaders and said that the, those with a need for personal power, which you know, uh, we'll talk about in a minute, tended to rise quickly, but then leave disaster in their wake, right? Whereas uh, those with an institutional uh, drive for institutional power tended to maybe not rise as quickly or be as flamboyant or visible, but they left something stronger in their wake, right? So they had a greater capacity for sustainability, right? Um, so the personal power leader is basically somebody lacking in inhibition, right? So it's a need for power, but a lack of inhibition. And so it becomes all about them, right? What I want, my demands. And these are leaders who tend to have problems with impulse control. They tend to be more emotionally, you know, dramatic, uh, often more charismatic, but it comes with a cost, right? They can be more abusive, um, you know, and uh, the big thing is they expect loyalty. They demand loyalty to them and not to the institution. Okay. To be, to be, to complement that, uh, it also makes them good leaders, especially when creating something, building something from scratch. Yes. Uh, it is useful not to have inhibition when you have inhibition or a high inhibition, uh, you tend to feel more reluctant to take action some ways, some, I mean, sometimes. And uh, that's the good side of it. It's not take, worrying too much about what people are going to say and how they're going to react. So they get it done. They build um, more empires or they, they create something. And that personal drive... Um, makes them be able to do that. Yes, absolutely. And um, so they do tend to really thrive in more entrepreneurial environments, right? That sort of startup uh, environment. And then if they're able to make the transition to cultivating some of the more institutional power characteristics, they tend to, you know, do well in the long run. If not, however, Know, things tend to collapse afterwards. Uh, one of the big problems that personal power leaders have is that they, um, they're very sensitive to um, other 
strong people, right? They're very, they're, they're, they're not comfortable with other people around them who are strong and capable because they see it as a threat. And so they tend to get rid of those people and surround themselves with yes men or yes women and, uh, you know, sycophants who will tell them what they want to hear. And they often um, hollow out the organization of really capable people. And therefore, when the personal power leader leaves an organization, the organization tends to pay a real price for it, uh, often collapsing or at least having big setbacks in transitioning to new leadership. Yeah, I, I, I just want to kind of balance of, I know that those things can happen and there might be uh, some more mature, and we'll talk about maturity, yeah. uh, personal power leaders who will still struggle to hand over the power to successors and uh, to have a more institutional uh, culture, uh, but might not be completely disastrous uh, mm -hmm. or damaging or as yeah. it's, um, it's just a tendency. Yeah. Yeah, ab absolutely. And again, it's the circumstances. And usually what it's related to is the size of the institution, right? Yeah. The bigger the institution is and the, um, um, the more overpowering the need for personal power is, the worse the situation is going to be. Right. And, in a, you know, if it's just a, you know, a small family business or something led by somebody with a need for your, you know, high, you know, it's not going to be that big a deal. Right. Mm. Um, but if it's, oh, I don't know, say the uh, the government of the United States of America, you know, um, hollowed out by someone with a profound need for personal power, then it has catastrophic effects. We're a big company, right? Um, you know, Steve Jobs, for example, was, you know, very much a good example of someone who was a personal power leader that had he not brought in a Tim Brooks, or I'm, I'm sorry, Tim Cook, um, who is more of a institutional power leader, you know, could have been problematic for Apple, right? So you're right. These things all come in degrees. Okay. Um, now, the difference between an institutional power leader is that they will build loyalty to the organization in people rather to the individual. Now, does this, you know, um, you know, is anybody pure of, of spirit? You know, um, probably not. Right. So these things are always in degrees. And, you know, you, you won't find institutional power leaders who don't have a big ego on their own. Right. But they balance it with more inhibition. Okay? Mm. They, you know, and, um, you know, as we'll see, I think, in, a, in another slide, that the key thing here is maturity. Right. It's just the ability to say, OK, it's not so much about me anymore. Right. But this is somebody who understands I have a role to play and um, I'm, I'm going to uh, play that role and understand that it's not about me, but it's about doing what's right for the organization. Yeah, and even if it's about me, I'll do a better job if the organization can go on without me later on. So yeah. it's if it can go beyond my um, role here, and it will mean that I was more powerful, that I, that I was better at what I was doing. Yeah. And that's usually the angle in when we're working with somebody who has tendencies towards personal power is to say, you know, Hey, you know what? You'll make even more of an impact if this organization thrives after you. Right. So this is why, you know, previously we've talked about the importance of developing talent through the organization. If you want something to last, Okay, uh, to me, or let me say this, the capacity to create something that lasts is the mark of a great leader as far as I'm concerned. Right. Uh, if an organization struggles after a leader leaves it, it's a sign that the leader didn't do a great job. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. That they had some limitations that they didn't address.
So, uh, yeah, so this is the uh, last one. Like we said here, maturity is a factor, right? So the institutional power leader uh, has managed to learn how to manage their ego a bit more, right? Or maybe didn't have quite as strong an ego in the first place. But again, it's going to be there. So they're egotistical, but not, but less egotistical, okay? Um, their self-image is not, you know, at stake in the job. Um, they're less defensive. They'll seek advice from experts and they take a long range view. And if you're thinking, you know, if you're sitting there thinking, okay, well, I'm not a leader, uh, you know, I'm not a CEO of a company. This doesn't apply to me. Any of these things have to do with parenting too, right? I mean, you can, it's just one example, right? You could be a band leader, whatever it is, uh, being able to set your ego aside, you know, not seeing yourself defined as being a parent, right? Not being defensive when you get pushback from your children or your spouse or something, um, seeking advice from other people on how to be a better parent and taking a long range view, right? Is it important that my kid get all great, you know, super grades, uh, or is it important that they're happy in the long run and you know well prepared for life, et cetera, right? So uh, these things apply in a lot of different ways. When understanding power, um, it's helpful to be familiar with another idea that McClelland had, which I think is, is really good, um, where he identifies four stages of power. And... Um, those stages of power. Is there a, a slide before this, Mariosa? I think there is. Yeah. Yes. Um, so it, it, he basically creates kind of a quadrant here. Um, and the two axes of the quadrant are whether the source of power is on the inside or the outside, meaning that I have the power or it has the power. Okay. And uh, the other axis is whether the um, uh, object of the power is me uh, or something else, right? Meaning whether I am being acted upon or I am acting upon something else. Um, and so this quadrant creates four stages. Okay. And, you know, and there are these stages, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that stage four is better than stage one. Uh, there is sort of an evolutionary aspect of this, but some situations are, you know, relevant to stage one where stage one is appropriate and others where stage four is appropriate. Okay, and we'll see that as we talk about each one of them. So don't see this as a better and better than worse than necessarily, but situational, okay, uh, as well as being evolutionary in a sense. Okay. So what do we mean by that? Uh, stage one is it strengthens me, right? I get my power from some external source. Um, the child thinks, you know, my power rests in, you know, my parents or whoever takes care of me. Uh, I am, you know, strengthened by the people who help me. Um, you know, in, in the workplace, it can be, you know, I, I, you know, I am strengthened by having a strong boss. I am strengthened by having a nice car or whatever it is. I am getting my strength from some external source. I am passive in this sense. Okay. Um, stage two is I strengthen myself, right? We're starting to get some sense of agency here, right? So if we look at it in, in sort of, you know, childhood stages in the beginning, it's, you know, I'm protected by my parents. And then we start to differentiate a little bit, right? We start to individuate and say, well, wait a minute, I, I have my own strength, my own power. And we see this in children as they start to exert their will on the world, right? Even in infants, um, you know, if there's this, you know, you know, toddlers, there's this desire to establish my own sense of agency and power and strength, right? To determine getting what I want. Okay. Uh, career wise, you know, we go on my, my, you know, my son's in college now and, you know, he's going to go out into the world and say, okay, you know, uh, I have to now strengthen myself. I have to act in the world. I have to be responsible for the things that happened to me. And this is stage two. Uh, stage three is we, we start to realize I have an impact on others. Okay. That what I do 
uh, affects others, but I also have the capacity, you know, again, if we look at it in childish terms or, you know, childhood terms, I can start to manipulate others. I can start to control others. I can start to influence others. I can start to motivate others, right? I can either, you know, um, um, you know, if I feel some sense of vulnerability, I can be a, a bully and pick on somebody weaker than me. Or from a more noble perspective, I can, you know, you know, rally the, you know, rally the other kids to, you know, deal with some injustice in some way. Okay, so it's this capacity to recognize, well, wait a minute, I have this strength that I can use to impact the world around me. The fourth stage is where we are empowered, we are moved to fulfill some duty by some external force, okay? Uh, The spiritual, you know, commitment is, you know, a good example of this, right? Uh, I'm doing God's work here. I'm doing God's will. And again, all of these things can be positive and negative, right? I'm always, you know, concerned about anybody who says they're doing God's work, right? Um, But if it's somebody who is motivated to fulfill some sense of ideals that they get through their motivation, that's often the cause of, you know, many, you know, good works in the world, right? So yeah, I was going to say that, that it doesn't have to be kind of God or something uh, yeah. uh, like that. It could be that the community, my, my loyalty to the community moves yeah. me to do my duty or, yeah. or things like that. Yeah, or the company or the group yes. or whatever it is, right? So it's an external mm motivation it's this commitment to something bigger than oneself right and this desire to you know be motivated by that to advance the the uh the objectives of that right Mm -hmm. Uh, again whether it's you know our uh, a philanthropic thing that we do or you know nurturing and protecting our family or a religious belief or whatever it is okay Mm -hmm. So, uh, so it's important to remember this because number one, it reminds us to look at our own motivations for why we're trying to create change in the world or influence something or exert something, right? We can ask ourselves, okay, where is this coming from, right? Is this stage one power? Is this stage two? And if so, is it a healthy you know, and mature manifestation? of either stage one or stage two or three or four or whatever it is. Okay. But just like anything else, having a framework for understanding these dynamics is really useful because it allows us to step back and objectively look at, okay, what's going on here? What am I really trying to accomplish and what's the best way to go about that? So leadership relationships are based on the three competencies representing represented by three points on the Enneagram diagram, like we talked about in the last video. Uh, Now we're going to talk about um, the, we talked about power before, which is at the top of the triangle and power is at the heart of leadership relationships, the accumulation and effective and ethical application of power. But that has to be built on a foundation of a dynamic tension between detachment and connection. And these are, again, kind of opposites in a way, but they are qualities that leaders and all of us need to hold at the same time. We have a tendency to bounce back and forth between the pole, you know, what we perceive as a polarity of these things. And most of us kind of reside closer to one of these than the other, either a little bit more detached or a little bit more connected. And what we have to learn is how to do both of them at the same time. Yeah. and, And it is important to become aware of these tendencies. Uh, and sometimes understanding our preferred strategy or dominant instinctual bias helps. And for example, the most evident one would be type two, where um, twos might be more tempted or comfortable with connection and less comfortable with detachment. 
and five, it's the opposite. Yeah. But there are others um, that are also, we could kind of map them out, like type one. I think there's something about detachment that it's present. Mm-hmm. Um, but depending on the subtype, there could be some tendency to connection. So I think that there's no formula for this, but it's just uh, some tendency to be closer or feel more comfortable in one or another side, depending on your uh, personality style. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's an important thing to, um, uh, to, to bring up that it helps us to look at how our particular personality profile, the combination of strategy and instinctual bias influences where we are most comfortable here. Right? because it causes habitual tendencies and we always want to be aware of what our habitual tendencies are so we can not be trapped by them. Right? Um, so when we work with leaders, they're often in the position of having to make difficult decisions. Right? And one classic one is related to other people, right? To their subordinates. You have an underperforming subordinate, for example, and the leader has to figure out, okay, how do I handle this situation? It's not uncommon for a leader to feel some sense of personal connection or obligation to the individual. It's a long-term employee. It's a friend of, you know, we've become friends over the years. I've been to, you know, this person's daughter's wedding, you know, whatever it is. They've been to my home. And uh, yeah, I, I hired them. I hired, <laughs> and they have been trying hard. Yes, there's all sorts of rationalizations and justifications that we can fall into to avoid making a difficult decision when we feel some emotional connection. Okay, now there are other times, and there are some leaders who resist making any emotional connection to people or are unburdened should we say, by emotional connection. And they can be kind of heartless at times, you know, just fire somebody without giving them a fair share. So leaders have to, you know, in this specific situation, recognize that, um, you know, I have an obligation to the individual. Absolutely, right? This person works for me. They're under my care. And I have an obligation to the whole. Right. I have an obligation to the company. I have seen it happen where leaders, you know, they get feedback from their boss about the performance of individuals in their organization and they refuse to make changes. You know, they refuse to fire people. They refuse to change people's roles. And, you know, what a what a good CEO would do in that situation is remove the leader. Right. Uh, for not being able to make a, um, you know, a difficult decision like that. And then you know, what ends up happening is the leader who won't fire the people ends up getting fired and then those people get fired anyway, right? So um, so this is a critical skill for leaders to be able to maintain the tension in an effective way between the individual obligation to the individual and the obligation to the whole. Now, again, as with all of these competencies, it's not just related to leadership situations, right? We all face this, okay? Uh, if you are a parent, you face this, you know, okay, uh, my heart, you know, feels sympathy for what my child wants, and uh, it makes me sad that they're crying because they're not having a third bowl of ice cream today, but... I have to exercise the detachment of what good parenting is and, you know, not give a child three bowls of ice cream in one day. Okay. So we always have to weigh these tensions between our heart and our head Okay, is what it comes down to it. Not go far one direction, not go far in the other direction, but maintain the tension between the two of them and act accordingly. Way to do this is to create good boundaries, right? Uh, to always be very clear on what our boundaries are. And as Maria Jose said, these two points correlate kind of most acutely or most directly to points five and two. Uh, and the fives and the twos often have kind of um, opposite problems with boundaries, right? Uh, um, you know, two struggle to set boundaries, either allowing people to invade them and their space, take advantage of them, you know, uh, uh, make their problems, the two's problems. 
uh, whereas fives have a tendency to create, you know, not just a good property line, but a moat, you know, that's impenetrable by other people. Okay, so too much of a boundary. So uh, there's there's a Walt Whitman poem I always like to reference here called uh, Walls, and it's a conversation between two farmers about the, the need for fences, right? And you know, and Whitman's point is that we shouldn't have fences, you know, we should all be connected, but he was a poet, right? So, you know, that's a great emotional thing, but the rest of us need appropriate boundary lines uh, between ourselves and our neighbors and our people we interact with. Yeah, and and for people who are drawn to making strong connections, boundaries seem, feel like something that will cut that connection. But the truth is that it will help me have better connections if I have the right boundaries. Yeah, yeah. This is you know, an example I often use here is, you know, with neighbors, right? I mean, uh, uh, when I first bought my house that we live in currently, you know, there's a fence on one side at the backyard and there's a fence in the back, but there's no fence on the other side. And I didn't want to put a fence up because it, you know, created a nice feeling of space. And so, um, so I, I went looking for the property markers, you know, okay, here's the property marker in the front and then in the back. And I, you know, went over to the neighbor and I said, Hey, you know, can we come out and take a look at this? I want to know what I'm responsible for, right? We've got these trees in the middle. If something happens to them, I want to know if I have to deal with it or not. Right. So, you know, and we had a very neighborly, pleasant conversation, right. Of, okay, here's the boundary marker. There's the other one. This is mine. That's yours. Right. And we never had any problems. Right. And, uh, but often if neighbors don't do that, they end up fighting over boundaries. Right. No, that's your tree. No, that's my tree, et cetera. So good fences do make good neighbors. Okay. And good boundaries do make for good relationships. The key is always making sure that the boundary is not too low and it's not too high. Okay. The, the fence is not too low or too high, uh, that it you know, provides clarity. It provides, um, uh, uh, a sense of something we can all agree on. Okay. Now, um, an idea related to this is, uh, getting the balance between or, or the, getting the balance of competence and sufficient warmth. Okay, what we mean here is uh, it's a great book called uh, uh, No One Understands You and uh, What to Do About It. Is that the title, Maria Jose? Uh, the Heidi Grant book? Yeah, I think I get confused because the article title is different to the right. book's title. Uh, so it's something around that. Yeah, let's see. It's actually on my shelf here. Um, yeah, no one understands you and what to do about it. And basically the um, uh, thing that she is talking about here, one of the things she talks about in the book is that people look for competence and sufficient warmth in their leaders. Okay? Meaning they have to be capable. I have to know that they know how to do their job, right? That they can get things done, that they can make things happen around here. Okay. And I need them to be sufficiently warm. Okay. Now, what that means is that they need to show some humanity toward me so that I can trust them, so that I know they're not going to throw me under the bus the first chance they get or when it's expedient. Right. So they, they show some concern about me. They don't have to be lovey-dovey and hugging me all the time and, you know, embracing me and telling me how wonderful I am. Um, we don't want too much warmth, okay? But too little warmth is a problem as well. And what that speaks to here, the, the, the Heidi Grant uh, uh, point, which is based on a lot of research, is that there's a balance that people look for of power and well-integrated connection and detachment from leaders that we look for in people, 